0: So, 1 Corinthians tonight, a new study, looking forward to it, really excited about it. We'll get into a little bit more of the background in the weeks to come, but just for a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul founded this church a few years before he wrote this letter. But in only a few years, the church at Corinth had lost its focus, if you will. And so Paul primarily writes the book of 1 Corinthians to sort of redirect where their focus should be. And it reminds all of us that local churches, even in a sense founded on solid ground, I mean, nobody was a, you know, greater church planner in church history than the Apostle Paul, and nobody would have laid a more biblical foundation for a church than the Apostle Paul. But it reminds us that any church can get off track so easily if we don't keep our focus where it needs to be. And so, more than any other uh, New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, the book of 1 Corinthians deals more with the nature of the church than any other book. And so that's why, obviously, as a pastor of a local church, I'm excited to share uh, the truths that, that God has laid on my heart with you over the next uh, weeks, really months, that we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians on Tuesday night. So as we look at this, let's look at this again from the perspective of being part of a church. And we've even talked about this through our study of Galatians on Sunday morning. What does it really mean to be part of a local church? And a lot of even Christians today have never been taught what it means to really be part of a local church. And there are many Christians who believe it's not important to be part of a local church. And to find a local church where they can be all in and really connect and be interconnected with their brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, let me give you an illustration that really is something I've remembered for years. Many of you, especially because we border the state of California, are are familiar with the sequoia trees, the the majestic, strong trees out there in, in California. But many people do not know that though they are very big and majestic trees, they have a very shallow root system. And the only way that they can really exist in their strength is to allow their roots as sequoia trees to interconnect with each other. And it's only through the interconnection of their root systems with each other can they really be as strong as they appear to be. And I think there's a great principle in there for us. When God called us to be part of a local church... Obviously, we are connected to Christ, but he also wants us to be connected to each other and to encourage each other, to, to st- be strengthened from each other. At the Old Testament book of Proverbs, iron sharpening iron. A walking with the wise, we become wise. And so it really is uh, the way God designed it. So with that said, we read from Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, And Sothenes, our brother. Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. And he writes this to the church. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to spend too much time on the introduction, or we'll never get through the rest of the chapter. But I do want to point out a couple of things about the church here in the first couple of verses. First of all, the the word church is rich, pregnant with meaning. It is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means two primary things. It means, first of all, that God calls us to a particular church. There's a lot of Christians that don't even know or believe that today. You mean God will call me to a particular local church? Yeah. But see, because many Christians are never taught to live by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, the idea that the Spirit of God will lead me to be part of a particular church is something that, like I said, they've either never heard or they're foreign to. And yet that is what's implied by the word ecclesia. We are a called out assembly. God calls us out to be part of a church. And God is calling out people here in this area to be part of the oasis. Now, he's not calling everybody. He doesn't want everybody. But he has certain families, certain individuals, certain people in mind that he is calling out to be part of this local church. Just as he did the church at Corinth. And so we are a called out people. And hopefully that's one of the reasons why you can be all in at the Oasis or whatever church you go to. If this is not your home church, because you believe you have been called by God to that church. Which can I also say that that also means that if you leave a church, you feel called out of that church as well. We'll get into that a little bit later. So we are a called people. The other Meaning of the word ecclesia is that we consistently gather together in Christ's name. As the writer of Hebrews says, we should never forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And there's the idea that when God calls us out from our private homes into a public place that we meet consistently together. So there's the idea of being called to a particular local church and of being consistent in our attendance and faithfulness to that local church. Can I also say, that's a foreign concept in a lot of circles today in Christianity. Consistency to a church, you see, because we're not taught that. That's why many churches have more spectators than they do participants. And yet, that's not God's design for the church. Notice also, we are to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. And, and the word sanctified just means to be continually purified in order to be rendered more useful in God's hands. Uh, don't have time to turn there tonight, but if you want to read more about that, uh, write down 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and following. It's where Paul tells Timothy that, that in, in a that great house there are many vessels, Some honorable, some not. And God wants us to be fit for His use. Useful vessels. And the way we are more useful in God's hands is when we allow God to sanctify us, to continually purify us and cleanse us. God won't use dirty vessels. When God wants to make an impact in His kingdom, He looks for the right kind of vessel to use. And the church should be made up of people who are continually being cleansed and purified. We're not perfect. But when we even do sin, we should confess our sins so that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Word of God is a way we cleanse ourselves. And then notice the word saints. Called to be saints. The word saint just means to be distinctive in every way. That we should live a distinctive lifestyle. That we should be different from the world around us. From those who do not know Christ. There should be, again, a, a, a difference in the way we live. In the way we talk. In the way we do life. This is what the word saint means. With all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should be a praying church. A praying church. We should be made up of people who are called by God to be here, who gather consistently, who are continually being purified in order to be rendered more useful, who are distinctive in every way, and who are calling on the name of our Lord consistently, praying. And then Paul says this, an amazing thought. Even though this church by this time was racked with problems, you would think Paul would be pretty down. Personally, he founded this church, started it off on the right foot, and man, it has taken a nose dive. But before Paul, in a sense, does get to the critical part of his letter in the chapters to come, he is thankful. Verse four, but he's thankful to God because he wants to remind these Corinthian believers that even though they've lost their focus and they've lost their way, it's not because they couldn't get back. Because he wants to remind them of who they are as God's people. He says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Again, being defined grace is the supernatural enablement of God. And then he goes on to say, for you were as a church made rich in every way in him. Wow, think about that. The words made rich literally mean to be abundantly supplied or furnished. In other words, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth and he reminds the Oasis Church here in Chandler that God has made us rich, meaning that he has abundantly supplied and furnished us as a church with everything we need to carry out his will for us as a people. He may not have given us everything we want, But at this moment in our our history, in the season of our church, He has abundantly supplied us with everything that we need in order to glorify Him and carry out what His will is for us. Many churches don't look at themselves as rich because they look at either the number of people that come or they look at the bank account or whatever And they don't look at the spiritual blessings that God has given. Again, they've lost their focus. They're focusing on the wrong things and forgetting who they are in Christ. And they're made rich in every way, in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge. In other words, we're made rich in knowing what to say and how to say it. That's in all your speech. And what to do and how to do it in every kind of knowledge. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? God has given us what to say and how to say it and what to do and how to do it. And then he says, verse 6, just as a testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you, so that, notice what else, verse 7, you as a church do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthian church was a gifted church, but every church that meets in God's name and that has been formed by God is a gifted church. In other words, again, God makes sure that whatever he's calling us as a church to be and to do, that he has brought the people with those particular gifts that can complement each other to get it done. The words lack or do not lack simply mean get left behind or lag behind. They were language that was used of runners in in the Greek days. And, And Paul's simply trying to paint a picture for the church that God is not, you know, as a church watching you have to look up ahead at seeing all these other churches sort of pass you by towards the finish line, towards the goal that God's called them to and somehow you as a church just are lagging behind and you can't catch up. No. God, God gives us everything we need. We do not lack any spiritual gift. And let me remind you of some principles here about even the concept of spiritual gifts in the church. First of all, And we're going to talk more about this through our study of Romans coming up and 1 Corinthians. But God gives every local church the gifts that they need to carry out His will. Secondly, we don't have time to dive into this tonight, but we will in, again, future weeks. Even the word spiritual gift teaches us that when we as a church use our spiritual gifts... We are empowered through the use of those gifts. Let me take that back even a step further to the individual Christian. You as an individual Christian are empowered in your Christian life when you exercise or use your spiritual gift. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is or you're not using it, then you're lacking some of the power that God wants you to experience in your life. Because as you as an individual are empowered through that gift, because the word spiritual gift, the Greek word charismata that's used here, it means an extraordinary power that God gives to us in order to serve each other. So the idea of power is involved in spiritual gifts. It is an extraordinary power that you and I don't have that God bestows in order to build up His church, in order to serve His church. And you and I will experience the power of God as we use our gift, no matter what that gift is. And the church is no different. As a body of believers... As a corporate body, we are empowered when more and more Christians begin to use their gifts within the context of the local church. And then finally, it's just being faithful to our spiritual gift and using it consistently in the body of Christ. Again, we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. And then he talks about the church should be expectantly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the end of verse 7. He tells the church at Corinth, he tells us, he will also, God, strengthen you. The word strengthen literally means to place on solid good ground. God says, I'm I'm giving you a solid foundation for the church. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to tell us that foundation is Jesus Christ. But God places the church on solid good ground. It's not like the church formed by Him doesn't have a solid foundation. Now, Paul's going to say later on in chapter 3 that we as believers who make up any local church like the church at Corinth, we need to be careful how we're building on that foundation. And I want to say this. And you're going to hear this again on Sunday and probably for a couple weeks. I really want to encourage those of you who feel that God is calling you to be part of the Oasis Church. And I want to, for this reason, you've got to realize how special you are that God has called you to be a part of a church like this at such a early stage in its history. Because you need to realize, and you need to hear from the pastor of this church, that yes, the foundation is Jesus Christ. But in a sense, all of you who are now part of this church, and we've only now been in existence for like, 16 months, we're still putting together, in a sense, the first story, the first level of this church that's being laid on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And that's important because that means that you all and the quality of you all are, in a sense, then the first story upon which the second story and the third story and the fourth story of this ministry as it travels down through the years is going to be built upon. And, and so it really is amazing to me the quality of people that God is bringing here in such a short time. And it excites me because when I see the quality of people, you folks here, and the ones on Sunny and stuff, it excites me because I understand then what God, I think, has for us in the future. So I hope that will encourage you as well. And then he goes on to say, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. We must remember that. God is faithful. He will be faithful to the oasis as he was faithful to the church at Corinth. By whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love this word fellowship. It literally means living hand in hand. Doesn't that paint a beautiful picture? living hand in hand with his son, Jesus Christ. See, in other words, God is saying that the church and us individually, we never have to take one step in life without walking hand in hand with our shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's going to be there with us every step of the way. That's why even it could be very daunting at this stage of our history because we're getting ready for sort of a defining moment a crossroads. We're getting ready to transition and The months ahead from meeting and renting a school to having our own place that we can call our own. And yet, as daunting and as intimidating and maybe fearful as that step is, I know we're going to walk hand in hand through this process every step of the way with Jesus Christ. And so because of that, it's like, No wonder the psalmist could write in Psalm 23, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid because I'm walking with my shepherd. And so we as a church don't need to be afraid of the future even though we don't know what the future is because we know that Jesus Christ is going to walk hand in hand with us through every step of the way. Now, Paul though begins to say, but here's why I know you've lost your focus. Verse 10. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together to end your divisions and to be united by the same mind and purpose. They... they There was so much strife and division and dissension. And here's why. Because they got their eyes off of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ called them to be and to do as a local church. And they got their eyes on their own circumstances. They got their eyes on each other. They got their eyes on personalities within the church. And they lost their focus. And that's why Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. He wants to redirect their focus. Ten times... In the first ten verses of this letter, Jesus Christ is mentioned. Do you think Paul's trying to get them to see something? Ten times in just ten verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned. He's trying to say, guys, you've lost your focus and I can tell you why. Because you're starting to fight with each other. Now, I want to point out something very important. The words agree together in my translation literally mean to say the same thing. Now, this is very important. Don't miss this. That doesn't mean that Paul or God is teaching that when Christians become part of a local church, they always need to agree on everything. Because we're going to find out in the Bible, no Christians agree on a lot of minor issues from God's perspective. But what he is saying to the church, and we're going to get into this more, is that the church should be able to agree on the major things. And when we disagree with each other, we should not speak it out loud. We should deal with our differences biblically and privately. And yet any of us who've been part of a local church, we know, all of us, And we've been guilty of it, that we've either heard other Christians in local churches or we've done it ourselves. When we didn't like something, we talked about it with all the other Christians that we knew in that local church. And Paul's saying when churches do that and they're speaking out their differences to each other, it's going to eventually cause division within that local church. He said a church, a local church, needs to form a divided front. Yes, there's going to be differences, but there's a biblical Christ-like way to handle it. And the way to handle your differences when you don't agree with something is to handle it privately, not publicly. And then to learn to major on the majors instead of majoring on the minor issues, which is what the church in Corinth got caught up in. That's why he says, verse 11, members of Chloe's household have made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, that there are quarrels among you. I mean this, that each of you saying I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos or I'm with Cephas or the super spiritual people are saying we're with Christ. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Verse 13, the word divided in the Greek literally means cut into pieces. He wants to paint a very vivid picture because he he's already taught in other epistles and he's taught the Corinthians before. We are all part of Christ's body. We are to be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet when we don't handle things biblically, it's like we chop Christ up into pieces. And he said, isn't that ludicrous? And he's trying to get them to see, yeah, that's pretty ludicrous to think that Christ is not whole, that somehow he's chopped up into, cut up into little pieces. And he says, so when a church, a local church doesn't handle things well and loses their focus, this is going to be the result. That's why he goes on to say, was I crucified for you? Or were you first baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Otherwise, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. And Paul's not minimizing baptism. It's an important step. But he's maximizing the importance of preaching the gospel. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with clever speech that the Greeks would get so caught up in. You know, people who could really be, you know, great orators and, and uh, eloquent in their, in their human way of speaking. No, Paul said, then the cross of Christ would become useless. Literally, the word in the Greek language means to be laid equally aside with something else and deprived of its force and power. And again, Paul wants to get them back to where their focus should be Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, the life of Christ, what Christ has done, what he is doing. It should all be about Christ. And yet, personalities, they've gotten, they're looking at each other, they're dividing up. I've seen it happen over the years in churches and families and everything else. You have a disagreement and all of a sudden that person in order to be validated or vindicated goes to people who are close to them and tries to get them into their camp. And then pretty soon instead of just two people involved in disagreement, you've got two camps involved in the disagreement. And then pretty soon you've got church splits and you've got everything because something wasn't handled biblically. It goes back to why Paul is going to have to say the things, the hard things that he needs to say to the Corinthians, because they've not grown up since the church was founded. And they're acting very immature and very childish. And when a church stays filled with childish, immature, even Christians, trouble is coming. That's why God is calling all of us to maturity, because when we grow up, we lay aside the childish things. And we learn to major on the major things. And we learn to keep our focus on Christ and on the cross of Christ rather than start looking at each other. And, and when we do have disagreements, we learn how to handle them biblically and Christ-like rather than the way the Corinthians were handling them. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say, The message about the cross... It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, delivered, restored, it is the power of God. And he goes on to talk about how God in his wisdom just totally turns around the way the world looks at things. You know, the world looks at even Christ on a cross as, as weakness. And yet we look at it as, no, that's power. And, and the, the world would look at Christ on the cross and say, there's defeat. And we would look at that and say, no, there's victory. And, and the world would look at the cross and say, that's foolishness to allow yourself to be crucified if you're God. And we would look at that and say, no, that's the wisdom of God in that moment. And so he's saying, get your focus back to where it needs to be. In other words, through verse really 25, he's saying you are beginning, if not already, to adopt a worldly way of looking at things rather than a spiritual, biblical way of looking at things. And this is why there's so many problems. Notice in verse 24, he reminds them, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the perceived weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He even uses them and he uses us and any other local church down through history as an example of this. He says in verse 26, think about the circumstances of your own call, brothers and sisters. The word think means to take a closer look, to examine carefully something. He said not many of you were wise by human standards. The word wise here means considered experts. He doesn't say not any. He says not many. In other words, even at the Church of the Oasis, there are probably not many of us who make up the Church of the Oasis that from a world's perspective, we would be called as an expert witness about something. He then goes on to say this. Also, not many of you were powerful. The word powerful there means wealthy and influential. Now, some Maybe at the Oasis, like some in the church in Corinth, they did, from a worldly perspective, have wealth and influence. But most did not. And then he says, not many were born to a privileged position. The word privileged position there means nobility or royalty. Now, maybe we have somebody connected with, you know, royalty here. We just don't know. it. And we all know that as children of God, we are royalty. But Paul's talking from a worldly human perspective. But, he said, God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. The phrase, shame the wise, means to come up empty handed in the end. In other words, they think they've got it all. They think they've got, you know, all that they can have and that they're going to take it with them and everything. And they're going to come to a point, if they don't turn to Christ, they're going to wake up one day and all they've lived for, all they've worked for, all they've, you know, put their energy and focus in, really towards eternity comes up nothing. That's what God's going to do one day. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something. The word set aside there to means be, to be more effective and efficient. See God's way is always more effective and efficient than man's way. Churches today have adopted worldly ways of doing ministry. And God says, my way is always better, even though it doesn't seem like it. Prayer is still more effective than any marketing campaign any local church could ever do. See, the weapons of our warfare, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, is mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But churches and individual Christians, we bought into the fact that somehow God's way and God's means aren't as effective as worldly means. And so we even have bought into the fact that, yeah, we don't change the message. The message is the same, but we'll just use whatever means are available to get the message out. The problem is God is as concerned with the means that we use as he is the message that we preach. We'll get to that more in the weeks ahead in 1 Corinthians. And he does this, verse 29, so that no one can boast in his presence. God is the reason you in Corinth and we here in Chandler have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who became for us the wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification from God. In other words, Paul's just ending this chapter by saying, you realize it's all about Christ. It's not about you. So, Corinthians, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off of each other, and redirect your focus to Jesus Christ and who He is and what He brings into your life. I just want to briefly remind you tonight, because this was very encouraging to me, what these, each of these words means that Jesus Christ brings. The first word, wisdom, from God. That means that Jesus Christ is the key in navigating life at the highest level. That's what the word wisdom means in the original language. It is the skill of living life. Wisdom is not just intellectually having a high IQ. That's the worldly definition of wisdom. The biblical definition of wisdom is being able to navigate life at the highest level. Jesus Christ is the key to that. Second, the word righteousness. That means Jesus Christ is the key in becoming who we were created to be. That's what the word righteousness means. The the word literally means as it ought to be, as it's right before God. And Jesus Christ is the key to each of us and as a church in being who God created us to be. The third word, sanctification, means that Jesus Christ is the key to purifying our lives. And when our lives are purified, they are focused. They are energized. Because remember, the word purified, we always take that in sort of a a sexually uh, charged context. Or we always look at it from a Christian perspective a lot of times as far as sexual immorality. And obviously it can be applied that way. But the base of the word purity just means undiluted undiluted if something is pure then it's not diluted and jesus christ being our sanctification means he gets rid of all the dilution spiritually in our lives so that our lives are focused like a laser beam so that we can seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness so that we can just zero in on what god's will is for our life and and what that does is that energizes us when we allow god to do that in our, and jesus christ is the key to that and then the final redemption that means that jesus christ is the key to release to letting go to freedom we talked about freedom in the book of galatians that christ has come to set us free but this word also means that Christ is the key in our life. If, if there's something that we need to let go or someone we need to let go or something or someone we need to release, Jesus Christ is the key to being able to do that, to lay it down either at the foot of the cross or to release it to God or whatever. That's, that's implied in the word redemption as well. To experience the real freedom. That God wants us to have, which is why forgiveness is part of freedom, because when you and I truly forgive, we are releasing what that person has done to us and that person into God's hands. And we are able to forgive. Knowing that God will deal with them, but we release them to God. We let them go to God. We don't try to deal with it ourselves. And in that we can experience freedom. Jesus Christ is the key to that. And because it's all about Jesus Christ and what he does, that's why Paul ends this great chapter with, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's just reminding the Corinthians, guys, what we do as a local church in Corinth and, and what you and I do here as a local church in Chandler, it's all because of Jesus Christ. If it wouldn't be for Jesus Christ, we wouldn't even be here. And, and it's even because of Jesus Christ that we're doing what we're doing. And, and it's because of Jesus Christ that we're able to do what we do. And that we have what we need to do what we do. And that we have the strength to do what we do. It's all about Him. And yet again, I want to remind all of us, the church at Corinth was founded by the Apostle Paul himself. He laid a solid biblical foundation, but only in a few years after Paul left, the church began to lose its focus. It just reminds us how, as local churches, how we can lose our focus so easily if we don't stay in the word of God and keep focused on what God wants us to focus on and learn through our spiritual growth to major on the majors instead of the minor things. And when we do disagree to do it biblically and privately, rather than to speak out our disagreements in public. I mean, not only just around other Christians, but think about what that does when Christians go out into the world and speak about their disagreements with other Christians to people who don't even know Christ. What kind of testimony then? How attractive is the local church and Christ to that person who doesn't even know Christ when we go out in the world and begin to talk negatively? Paul says we've lost our focus. So I'm excited, folks, because I've studied this book all the way through already, and I can't wait to share the next 15 chapters with you after chapter 1. We're going to do things a little bit differently here tonight. Usually at this point I close in prayer and we're dismissed, but because I just felt that after studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God was just saying to me, Jeff, it's all about Jesus, and you've just got to keep your focus that it's all about Jesus. I called up Nicole. I said, Nicole, can we sing this song that we just sang on Sunday, on Tuesday night, just to sort of wrap up our time together and remind us all that the heart of worship is all about Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray and then they're going to come and we're going to sing that together and then we're just going to be dismissed. And thank you guys for being here tonight. I look forward to Tuesday night. I look forward to Sunday. I look forward to what God is doing. I'm excited about what God is already doing. And I want you to know that you are somebody special, not only in my eyes, but in God's eyes, because you all informing the Oasis at this point in its history, you're part of that first story, that first level that's being built on the foundation that God has already laid. And therefore, all future generations, people who come to the Oasis a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, are going to come... Because of what you have laid on top of what God has done. I hope that will encourage you tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the encouragement of Corinthians. Thank you, Lord, for the heart of Paul. And God, I just pray tonight that right here tonight, individually and corporately, as your people, that we would just keep making it all about you. God, we are reminded tonight it's so easy for us to begin to make it about ourselves. That even the local church becomes about us. Even the churches that we choose become about us. What the church can do for us or our kids or everything else. And it's not about you anymore. It's not about your spirit leading anymore. It's all about us. So God, as we sing this song tonight and as we reflect upon the words of this song, may we just... Not only be reminded that it's all about you, but even through singing this tonight, may may each of us, and as a church, may we just commit ourselves to making everything that we do be to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And know that what we do is only because of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.